Over the past few years, I have asked you guys to give me a rating and review. And if you've done that, thank you so, so much. I really appreciate it. It's so helpful. But if you haven't, I get it. I kind of get it. Like, I'm asking you to go and click on this thing and then like, how do I do it? And then I have to come up with some kind of a review and I don't know what to say and I'll do it later, right? I, I get it. I've, I've kind of been there before. I, I know exactly how you feel. And so I'm not asking you to do that now, okay? What I'm asking you to do now is so easy. Anybody can do it and it literally takes like one second. Go into whatever you're listening to, whether it's Apple Podcast or Spotify or whatever platform you're listening on, they all have it, and just click on the subscribe button. Just subscribe. It takes one second. You don't have to be creative. You don't have to come up with a review and write it all out and you know be self-conscious about it. Just hit that subscribe button. That would be so, so, so impactful for me. And if you're enjoying this and getting a lot out of it, that would mean the world to me. It really would. And it's so easy. Anyone can do it. Like, let's literally stop listening right now. Stop listening. Go and do it. That's how much it means to me. Nobody ever asks you to leave their show and stop listening for anything. But I'm asking you to stop listening right now. Go and just quickly subscribe. Come right back and take a listen. That would mean the world to me. I would really appreciate it. You guys are awesome. And I really appreciate it. Thanks. COVID really exploded the popularity of short-term rentals because obviously people were hesitant to go into a huge brick cube, which is a hotel, where there are hundreds or thousands of people packed into this brick cube and touching doorknobs and coughing and sneezing. And people didn't want to do that during COVID. And so short-term rentals, having this house that had a refrigerator and a stove and a sink and this kitchen area and all this where they could buy their own food, bring them in and, and felt like they had a more of a germ-free environment that just exploded short-term rentals. It exploded the popularity. I don't think that's going away anytime soon. People are obviously a lot less afraid of COVID, but I think it set a trend or it set something in motion that isn't going to go away anytime soon. You're listening to the Just Start Real Estate Podcast. If you're serious about your real estate investing business and need real answers, you are in the right place. And now, your host, Mike Simmons. All right, thank you for joining me on another fantastic Wednesday live Q&A replay where I replay my live at, that I do every single Wednesday and we get live questions. We get some questions that are sent in to us and I answer those for you. And uh, I just think it's a, a really fun time and we get some great questions. And so you get to benefit from that here and hear those questions and how that all went. Uh, this week was fun. We had some live stuff. Uh, somebody asked me about a marketing budget of $1,000. What kind of marketing should they do? What's the most effective for that money? Uh, we talked about that quite a bit. Somebody also asked, in a declining market like we're in, how do you determine the ARV on a flip in order to make sure that you are profiting every single time. Uh, and profit is the name of the game here, guys. So we talked about that. It was a lot of fun. Uh, we also had some other questions. Let's see. Uh, let's see. How do you decide what your profit should be when you're a newbie? How do you know how much profit to account for? Uh, great question. And I think it's a, a misconception that people have sometimes on that. Uh, contingencies to put in contracts so that you can get out if you need to. What does that look like? How do you word those contracts so you have a way to get out other than an inspection clause? This person didn't want to use an inspection clause. And then we also talk short-term rentals. 
and why they're popular. Will they continue to be popular? Should someone do it? Is it worth all the hassles? And some other questions too that were really great. So this was a fun one, guys. I hope you enjoy our latest live Q&A replay. All right. I hope you guys are there. Something weird happened and my live just shut off all across the board. But uh, we're back now. So welcome to another Wednesday edition. They're all Wednesday editions of my Wednesday live Q&A. So thanks for being here. I appreciate it. Um, I cannot wait to dive into the questions today and get into it. Uh, if you don't know, if you've been living under a rock, uh, if you're not aware, uh, the market is changing, guys. Things are happening in the market. Uh, it's a little different than it used to be. House prices are going down. Interest rates are going up. Uh, which is sort of like creates this this crazy uh, time where everyone's a little bit nervous and freaking out. You don't have to freak out. Here's here's the thing. Always, especially when you're newer, but even when you have a business that's established, your North Star is leads and offers. Or I should say, say your North Stars are leads and offers. Keep driving leads into your business. Keep trying to get cheaper, better leads and make more and more offers. Leads and offers will cure a lot of what ails you in a real estate business. So that's the focus right now. Uh, don't get overly concerned about, oh, should I be investing in this market? Should I not be investing in this market? You should be investing in this market. Matter of fact, I just got off the phone a couple of hours ago with a good friend of mine. He happens to be in my market and he was just talking about how his goals for 2023, he made them a little while back and he had he had these aggressive goals and he just reassessed it and he's his he increased his goals. Like he he just couldn't, he was so excited on the phone telling me what an amazing time it is right now to be an investor, what opportunities there are, and he's just he, he's like doubled all of his goals. Like he's just really super bullish on what's happening in our in our market right now. And and talking, I I'm I feel the same. But talking to him was great because I do talk with some of you who are really nervous, and and so most of the people who are nervous that I find that are nervous about the market coming up or the market that we're in are newer investors. And this is not a new investor. This guy I talked to earlier today, he's a very seasoned, very serious pro. He's good at what he does, house flipper mostly, but does a lot of wholesaling too, and some and some short term rentals and some other stuff. But he is just like, he's freaking out. He's like, I, I, I got to raise more money. Like, there's so many opportunities. Like, I can't believe how many opportunities and how much money there's to be made. Blah, blah, blah. And he's like so excited and so optimistic. And I really think that's the way everyone should be right now. The opportunities are just off the charts of what we can do in this market and what's available to in this market. It is an incredible opportunity that we're on the cusp of right now. And you really need to be ready to capitalize on it because everybody looks back years after a time like we're kind of in right now and going into and they go boy if i just knew what i was doing more back then i could have really cleaned up i say that about 2008 i i started in 2008 i started investing in real estate i didn't know what i didn't know right so i just got in and was trying to learn and you know i was trying to figure it out on my own i didn't have any mentors really i didn't have any coaches or anybody in my corner and so i just sort of tried to figure things out and I really wasted a great opportunity by being so new and so, you know, ignorant of what was possible. I I missed out on a million opportunities to make a lot of money and to really do some good. And so 
we're we're going into a time where I think when we look back in five years or 10 years, a lot of people are going to say, wow, what an opportunity I had. And I just thought it was I was scared. And so I didn't do anything. And this is not the time for that. So leads and offers. And to that end, guys, you may know, you may not know. Uh, I have a course called Winning Direct Mail. If you go to my website, mikesimmons.com forward slash winning direct mail, or just go to the homepage on my website. And right there, you can uh, get access to this course. It's an A to Z course on direct mail. I still think direct mail is the best form of marketing. It gives the most reliable, consistent, cost-effective, good ROI leads. So uh, if you're not doing it, you should be doing direct mail. And if you are doing direct mail, it's always good to get better, right? So I would go and grab that course while it's free. It is currently free. I made it to be free, but the more I see it and the more that people are getting in there and getting access to it and giving me feedback of how good it is, I realize it's probably something I should be charging for, honestly. And so I, I may I may start charging for it in the future, but for now it's free. So go and grab it. It's called Winning Direct Mail. You can go right to my website, mikesimmons.com and grab that and uh, get it while it's free. Okay, uh, let's dive into the questions for today. You guys, if you have questions, by the way, pop them in the chat. If you're listening on YouTube or Facebook or wherever you are, pop them into the chat and I will get those and I'll answer them and I'll give them priority. Uh, but until I get questions in the chat, I am going to answer the questions that were sent to me. Those will come first. So here we go, starting off with the first one. First question, let me pop it up on the screen. It says, I am curious how you decide what should be your profit on a flip when you're a newbie. How do you come up with that number? It's a good question. Um, it's not, it's, it, when you're a newbie, you don't know how to do it, I get it, but the, the price or the profit doesn't necessarily change. When you get more experience, you'll end up making more profit. But I think the targets and the numbers that you use to, to calculate things are probably gonna stay relatively similar. And it really depends on the market you're in and things like that of what you could expect to make. In Michigan, it's kind of, it's Midwest. Most of the flip houses, um, the ARV is is going to be somewhere between 100 and 300 or maybe 10350 somewhere in there. And what typically um, house flippers in this part of the part of the country are looking for is about a 20% profit margin. So if you're selling a house for $100,000 ARV, like that's the retail price, we're trying to make 20. And I usually tell like my team, I do more wholesaling. But when you're a wholesaler, you have to understand how to run the numbers like a flipper. And so I have to know my team, we have to know how to run numbers the same way a flipper does so that we can, you know, price things appropriately and make sure that we're accounting for the flippers profit that they're going to want. And so on our team, we usually tell our guys, assume that a house flipper wants $20,000 on the first 100000 and about 15000 on every 100000 after that. And so a $200,000 house, they want a 20000 on the first 100000 and they want another 15000 on the second 100000 worth of value, right? So a $200,000 house, we kind of assume a house flipper wants to make 35000 and if it's a $300,000 house, we usually assume they meant what they want to make about, uh, what is that, 35, 45, about 50,000, right? Just kind of round numbers. And it's, it does sort of like maybe slow down. Maybe it's like 20, 
for the first hundred, 15 for the second hundred, and then 10 for every hundred after that. Something like that is, is usually how we calculate it. Um, but if you're a newbie, that's that's kind of about where I'd want to be. Like you want to make sure you're probably in that fifteen thousand or fifteen percent profit margin range. I think that's a pretty safe range. Now, here's here's the mistake that n- newbie flippers a lot of times make. And I'm just going to use a hundred thousand um, dollar retail price. It's just it's simpler math. I know that that is not a realistic price in a lot of places, but just for the sake of of simple math, let me stick with a hundred thousand. I would tell a newbie investor, if you're going to sell a house retail, fully renovated for 100000 you should expect and you should want to make a $20,000 profit. And what a lot of new investors will say to me, and I've heard this a million times, and I remember feeling this way, so I, I get it. But what a lot of people will say to me is, uh, I don't need, I don't mean 20,000 is great, but if I made 10,000, I'd be happy. If I made 5,000, I'd be happy. Like that would be phenomenal to make $5,000. The problem is, your profit margin is not always a, a representation of what you have to make to be happy, but the profit margin is also a kind of a built-in margin of error, okay? And so if you're buying a house for, let's just use easy numbers, you're buying it for 75000 and you're going to put $25,000 into it to renovate it. You're all in, uh, I'm sorry, let's, let's take that, let me take that back. We're using 100000 retail. You buy the house for 50000 and you put, uh, $25,000 into it for renovation. So now you're at six, uh, 75,000 and you're going to sell it for a hundred, which means there's $25,000 in profit. I, I understand there's closing costs and cost of money, but let's just keep this simple for a minute. You buy it for 50, you put 25 into it and you're going to profit 25,000. You may say, well, I, I don't really have to like profit 25,000. So I'm going to offer, I'm going to offer um, 70,000 and I'm going to put 25 into it and I'm going to have a $5,000 profit on the, on the end of it. I'm happy with $5,000 profit. The problem is if anything goes wrong on that project, something happens during renovation, you open up a wall and find out there's just all kinds of issues or you get into it and there's a foundation problem or there's a sewer problem that's going to cost a lot of money. Now you're not making, you're not only not making 5,000, you're probably going to lose money because some renovation, you know, catastrophes are more than $5,000. And so if this unexpected uh, expenditure for your renovation, some unexpected thing costs you $15,000, you're now $10,000 in the negative, right? So you're losing $10,000. So when I tell people like build in at least a 20% profit margin on that first hundred thousand, it's not because I know that they don't have to make 20,000 or 25,000. I know that they don't, they would be happy with less, but there's a really good chance, especially on your first few projects that you won't make all the profit. You think something will go wrong. Either something will happen during rehab. That is way more than you thought it would be. It takes way too long to renovate it. That's pretty common. And then, so the cost of money, taxes, insurance, and all the holding costs are going to just crush you or whatever. Something's going to happen. So there's a really good chance you're going to buy that house for 50. You're going to put 35 into it, right? And now you're at, at 85 and you only make 15, not 25. You thought maybe you'd make 25, you make 15, great. But if you cut it too close and you reduce your, your projected profit, make it too low, you're basically taking away all your margin of error. 
So we all know that if you buy a house for 50 and put 25 into it, you're not going to cry yourself to sleep if you make less than 25,000. That's not the issue. The issue is you need a margin of error. You need to know that I have a $25,000 profit margin built in. And so if something goes wrong, maybe I only make 15, right? You know, you're probably, probably not going to blow the entire $25,000 of profit margin, hopefully, right? Especially if you're getting, you know, good coaching, good mentorship, or you've got somebody in your corner that's kind of helping you, which you should have, you know, you're not going to lose all that, right? So there's going to be some profit, but at the minute you start scaling that profit down out of desperation to get a deal and you reduce that profit margin to something crazy like $5,000, now you're really kind of on a, on a high rope or a tight rope without a net, like you have no safety net. If anything goes wrong, you're going to lose money. And if you borrow that money, that's a really bad situation. You've got a lender that isn't, you know, you're not able to make whole at the end of it. So profit margin, I think, let's just say for the sake of argument, let's just shoot for at least 15% on the retail um, price. So if it's, you know, whatever, you, you can do the math, right? Um, just make sure that you're, you've got enough built in there that if something goes wrong or you hold this thing too long, you've got enough profit cushion to make up for that so you don't end up losing money. The worst thing ever is not breaking even. The worst thing is losing money and not being able to pay your lenders back. That's the worst thing you can do. You never, never want to burn a lender. Never, never, never. I don't care what you have to do. Get a second job beg your family members, whatever. You never want to leave a lender high and dry and not pay them back. That's burning a bridge that you really can't afford to burn. So uh, that's my advice on that one. Okay, uh, let's see. Got a question in the chat from Miles Livingston. Miles, how's it going, man? Um, going into this market, which is declining? Let's see, which is declining for the most part? Yeah, let me put it up on the screen so everyone can read it. If you're looking at this, there we go. Going into this market, which is, is declining for the most part, how do you determine ARV on a flip in order to profit? So in a declining market like this, if data is really important, you have to track in your market how much house prices are dropping. And there's a lot of tools you can use for that. I mean, I know Zillow has some, Redfin has some, um, Border Realtors puts out stuff, but you just need to look. And I think house prices for the most part in this country, the, the first cracks in the foundation, no pun intended there, it's a kind of a real estate pun, but no, the cracks in the foundation in terms of the, the values of homes started to decline around May for most people, right? So around May it started. So I would look, now that we have some, some time from between now and last May, right? There's some months in there. I would look at what have house prices done in your market from May until now. And let's just say they dropped by, 10%. Let's, I, I don't know if that's an accurate number for your market. Maybe it's five, whatever. It dropped by 10. Now you got to look around and see what are the projections? What are people projecting? Are they projecting to go down another 10 over the next six months? And you really are trying to look at a six-month window. And so, again, using my $100,000 house you know, price value as, as the example, let's just say back in April, uh, a, a comparable house to the one that you're going to flip sold for $100,000. But now the, the comps in the last 30 days, that house uh, on average is selling for 90,000. If I were you and I bought that house today, I would assume it's gonna sell for 80,000 three to six months from now. It'll be closer to 80. So you have to kind of, uh, 
unfortunately, you in this market, you have to predict the the declining prices. You got to try to because the last thing you don't last thing you want to do is buy a house, comp it wrong, put it on the market too high, and then chase house values down. I've done this, right? You're chasing them down. You list it for hundred because it was worth a hundred, you know, six seven months ago and no offers and you drop it to like 95 but while you drop it to 95 after a couple of months meanwhile the actual value has dropped too right and then you wait a couple more months you're like ah, i'll drop it down to 90 and now the real actual value drops again and that's how people start chasing the market so to speak you don't want to do that so if the house was worth 106 months ago today it's worth 90 retail i would assume it will be worth 80 six months from now. That, that would be my assumption. That's how I would look at it. So you have to time it a little bit. Unfortunately, for the last two years, we have, as, a, as an industry, we've gotten a little bit lazy on the sell side because a year ago or a year and a half ago, if you bought a house and it was worth 100000 right now, like it's going to be worth probably more than you even thought it was going to be worth six months from now, right? And if you said, hey, I bought it, you know, it's worth 100 right now, I think it'll be worth 110 or 115 in six months. In most cases, it was worth 130 or 140, right? It's like we had all these like really pleasant surprises over the last few years where we're buying houses and they're worth so much more than we thought they were going to be worth when we go to sell them. And it's like Christmas every time we go to sell a house, we're just surprised at all the money we're making. We're not in that market anymore. So to your point, Miles, we have to we have to um, anticipate. We have to anticipate the decline in the market in the market value of the house over a six month period. And I just look at historical data, and then I kind of extrapolate that forward. If we lost ten percent the last six months, I assume at least right now, I assume we're going to lose another ten percent six months from now. It's not going to go that way forever. At some point, it's going to level off, and then it's going to probably start going back up again. Right now, we're in a declining market. There's no doubt about it. We haven't leveled off yet. So to be safe, I would assume whatever happened over the last six months, it's going to happen again in the next six months. That that's just how I would be safe. And I'll I'll be honest with you right now flipping houses it's a little tougher than it was um you know a year ago it's a little bit more risky than it was a year ago or two years ago but it's not impossible I, again i got off a call today with someone who's i think i think like i think they want to flip like a hundred houses or something this year like they're not slowing down at all matter of fact they're speeding up they're going to be flipping more houses this year than they did last year and so you can't you don't want to be afraid of it you just want to be smart about it and th that starts with anticipating the decline right um, you don't have to predict or anticipate rising values as much it's not as critical anyway you probably should predict them but you know if if the worst thing happens is you totally screw up and make more money than you thought you were going to make that's great that's the market we were in it's not the market we're in now we're going the other way so you have to anticipate those lower values coming up all right. Uh, let's see. Next question. All right. Are are any specific contingent? Are there any specific contingencies to put in a contract to purchase a house so you can be sure to get out if you choose, other than inspection? Yeah, there is. Uh, we don't put inspection contingencies in our contracts. What we have in our contracts are funding contingencies, and so our contracts essentially say if if we cannot obtain funding in time to close on the property, 
then we reserve the right to step out of the deal. And that's the agreement we have on every contract that we sign. Our sellers are made aware of it. We don't hide it. We don't bury it. We put it right in front and say, listen, this is the deal. This is, you know, we're not going to have an inspection contingency where this is an as-is purchase. We know that because we're buying houses that are in distress for the most part. Uh, but we do have to run this by our funding partners. And if we can't get their approval, we'll let you know and we'll cancel the contract. And so that's the conversation we have. That's a contingency that we put in there. Um, totally up to you. You don't have to have a contingency in your in your purchase agreement, but I, I think you probably should, whether it's inspection or a funding or something else. The, the key is whatever contingency you put inside of your contract, you have to make that really, really clear to your sellers. Don't try to hide it. Don't imply anything that isn't entirely true. Like just be totally upfront and transparent with them and there's nothing wrong with that. It's when people try to bury some out clause or they gloss over it or outright lie about it, right? Like that that's unethical and you can't do that. So put the clause in there, whatever you think that is is required or needed and um and make the sellers aware of it. That's it. Simple. Okay. Uh, let's move on to the next question. Um, let's see, here we go. All right. Next question. Why do you think investing in short-term rentals is so popular now? Seems like such a big initial expenditure and a lot of headaches, maintenance with restocking and cleaning. Uh, yeah, I, I think they're, I mean, they've, they've been getting popular for a long time. COVID really exploded the popularity of short-term rentals because obviously people were hesitant to go into a huge brick cube, which is a hotel, where there are hundreds or thousands of people packed into this brick cube and touching doorknobs and coughing and sneezing and all this stuff, touching railings. People didn't want to do that during COVID. And so short-term rentals, having this house that had a refrigerator and a stove and a sink and this kitchen area and all this, where they could buy their own food, bring them in, and, and felt like they had a more of a germ-free environment, that just exploded short-term rentals. It exploded the popularity. I don't think that's going away anytime soon. People are obviously um, a lot less afraid of COVID. I get it. But I think it set it it set a trend or it set something in motion that isn't going to go away anytime soon. Now, as far as them being a headache with maintenance and restocking and cleaning, no doubt about it. But you have to get your mind right. If you're going to have a short-term rental, you can't go into it going, oh, this cleaning and restocking is for the birds. I hate it. Because a short-term rental is a hospitality business. You're getting into a, a hospitality business, right? You're buying the real estate. You're renovating it. But this isn't like a flip or a wholesale or even a long-term rental, right? Like a set it and forget it kind of a rental. This is an active business. It is the hospitality business, just like a hotel. Like you are in charge of guests that are there. It's your job to make sure they have a good experience. You have to answer questions. You have to be able to respond to concerns. And yeah, it's a hassle. But you know, if you have a house that you can buy for you know, a quarter of a million dollars somewhere and furnish it. And that quarter of a million dollar house, let's just say the market rent for that is $1,500 a month, long-term, right? Long-term rental, one-year lease, it's a $1,500 per month 
rent. Like that's just the rate, you know, the rent rates for that area. That's fine. A short-term rental though, just to kind of use a hypothetical, you buy it for 200,000, you may be able to rent that on a short-term rental basis on Airbnb or VRBO. And maybe that house brings in $4,500, $3,500 in rent. Yes, it's extra work. I get it. But you can get two, three, four, five times the long-term rent rate as a short-term rental. Yes, there's more hassle involved. If you, if you look at it that way, there's more work involved, but there's significantly higher profits available to you on a short-term rental basis. So that is why people do it. It's not because... You know, if if the work was was way more, but the rents were exactly the same as long term rentals, there would be no sane reason to have a short term rental if the rent rates weren't any better. But they are. In fact, they're not just better. They're astronomically better in some cases. Right. And so that's why they're popular. That's why people do them. If you don't want to be in the hospitality business, you should not be buying and and renting out short-term rentals. You just shouldn't do it because it is a hospitality play. It just is. Um, it doesn't mean you can't get into that, understand it, build a team, hire people to handle the hospitality part of it, train them, and then you back out of the hospitality. And now you've just got this these these houses that have tremendous profits, right? That that to me, that's the only way to do it. I don't want to be in the hospitality business either, but I'm starting to buy short-term rentals because I know that the profit and the cash flow on those things is off the charts. I'm not going to be doing hospitality very long. I'm going to build a team and hire that out and and have other people doing it for me. But that's how I go about any business, right? There's not I, I can't think of a business where I love the thought of being in the day-to-day forever. I'm in the day-to-day long enough to learn it, get good at it, and be able to train on it. And then I hire people, train them to do it, and then I back out of the day-to-day. That's that's every business I will ever get into. That's exactly how it will go. I'm not a day-to-day um, business maintenance mode person. I can't I can't operate that way. And a lot of entrepreneurs can't. I'm not unique that way. It's an, I'm not even saying it's a good thing. Probably a bad thing. I wish that I had the ability to sort of like grind out day-to-day stuff. It would be nice, but I don't. And so I grind it out only until I can find someone that I can bring in to do it and probably do it at a higher level than me anyway. And that's how we do it. So it is more work, no doubt about it. But that's the trade-off for the kind of cash flow and profits that are out there uh, for short-term rentals. So that's why people do it. I think it's fantastic. I'm doing it myself. So I don't want to be hypocritical. I, I think I think everyone should consider it. And and if you just don't like the idea of it, though, don't do it. It's not for everybody. Like, you know, I just got done saying flipping is a little harder right now. But there are people who absolutely love it. I talked to a guy today, absolutely loves flipping houses. I don't. And so I choose not to do it. And it's not for me. I don't care if there's profits to be made. I don't like the model enough to do it personally. I get it. I understand the model. I have coach people to be flippers and they've been wildly successful. I just personally, it's not a model that I enjoy. So I don't do it. Um, Short-term rentals, same way. Um, If you don't like it, if you don't like the idea of it, don't do it. There's a million ways to make money in real estate, guys. You really don't have to just follow the latest um, fads or or the the new hot thing. There's always going to be a new hot thing. Figure out what makes you happy and build a business around that. Don't turn it into another job for yourself. Like do it, like get really good at it 
and then create a business that allows you to enjoy the money, the profits, but not necessarily be a slave to it. That there's nothing, you know, there's no freedom in that. Like making a lot of money, but having a business that you have to work in from sun up to sundown, that's no life in my opinion. And I don't think that's how it should go. But um, if you like the idea of short-term rentals, absolutely go for it. I think there's tons of reasons to do it. If you absolutely do not like, and the, the headaches of maintenance, restocking, and cleaning is just like mind-numbing to you, don't do it. Absolutely. There's other way, other things you can do. Be a long-term landlord. By the way, there's a mid, there's something called midterm rentals, right? A midterm rental is between like the Airbnb model of like two, three, four nights and the one-year lease. It's something in between. It's like like one to six month um, leases or one to six month um, stays. And that's a great niche too. And there, I just did a podcast on that that I don't think it's released yet, but um, you can look up midterm rentals and kind of look into that. I, it, we don't have time to talk about tonight, but it's a great option as well. So it's something to look into guys. Don't forget, I came up with a course that I think is just going to blow your socks off called winning direct mail. If you go to my website and uh just put your information in there on a homepage. You can get access to this course, or you can actually go to winningdirectmail.com and you can find it there too. So uh, either way is fine. You can go to my website or just go straight to winningdirectmail.com and you can get that course. Go and grab it, guys. That's all I have for tonight. Oh, wait, do we have another one? Miles asked another question. Here, I'm going to answer this because I promise I always prioritize you guys when you ask questions live. All right. Miles said, in your opinion, ooh, let me put it on the screen. In your opinion, which of the two would generate the best returns in order to generate leads? Cold calling or direct mail? This would be a very small marketing budget, less than 1K monthly or so. That's a great qualifier. I'm glad you said how much you're going to spend. Um, I don't know if you're still on, Miles, but I'd like to know what market you're in. Uh, that would be helpful. But in general... If you're telling me you have $1,000 to spend monthly, uh, that's so close. If you had $2,000 to spend monthly, I think I would say direct mail all day long. $1,000, I might, uh, you're in California. Okay, I would do cold calling then. Cold calling is where I would go. It's not because I don't think cold calling can hold a candle to direct mail. I really don't. But I think volume, sometimes... Marketing a lot of times it really boils down to volume. And so I think $1,000 will get you a higher volume of attempts at the market uh, in California than, than direct mail. Because a direct mail campaign that has a $1,000 monthly budget, for the sake of easy math, will get you approximately 2000 postcards and especially in California most places 2000 2000 postcards is not is not really going to break the threshold you need to be at to get you noticeable results okay i think for most people in california depending on where you're in california too like i don't know california like i don't live there so i'm not totally familiar but if you were like, I'm in LA or I'm in San Diego or I'm in San Francisco, 2,000 postcards is 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 not going to get you there. If you're inland or, or someplace where it's just a little, uh, where house prices and competition's a little, you know, less intense, 
maybe 2,000 postcards. But honestly, even in the Midwest, where it's probably easier to get deals um, using postcards, lower volume, I still tell people three to 5,000 postcards is kind of where you want to be. If you can't get there, you know, doing um, two or 3,000 is, is okay to start. But I, I just think for a $1,000 budget, you probably will get farther with cold calling. However, when it comes to cold calling, because it, this, is a, this is a numbers game, right? It's a volume game. You will probably want to hire this out and get them on a, a speed dialer like um, Mojo Dialer, or I think it's like called Zen Call maybe, where you're making five calls at a time, 10 calls at a time. They're all ringing simultaneously. When someone picks up, the other ones drop. Like you, you can't, you really, it's hard to get any traction with cold calling when you're doing one call at a time. You're sitting there waiting, ring, 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 you know, 15, 20 times, hang up, dial the next one, ring, 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 ring. Like you won't get there. You need a power dialer. You need at least one person power dialing, maybe two people. If you can, I think you can do it on that budget, $1,000. You should be able to do it on that budget, no problem. Uh, get two people power dialing, and I, that's the way I would go with a thousand dollar budget. If you had a two or three thousand dollar budget, I would say direct mail all day long. And if, if by the way, if cold calling doesn't work for you in the first, you know, two to four months, if you're just not getting the kind of leads that you expect, then I, there's nothing wrong with switching to direct mail and giving that a shot. But I wouldn't cold call or or anything. I wouldn't do any marketing for less than maybe four or five months like that would be like the least amount of time i would give it especially cold calling i have heard and i've done cold calling my team but i know people who have done a lot of cold calling way more than i have ever done and all of them say the thing with cold calling that they find is the nurture process takes longer uh you, you have to you have they need more touches you're not going to get it on the first call necessarily you sort of have to have this nurture process where it takes three, four or five months to start getting yeses and to start getting appointments and start getting deals. So direct mail, you can kind of almost like send out mail, start getting calls, go on an appointment. You can get a deal in that first month, potentially. Cold calling takes a little longer, but your money goes a little farther. So I would probably start there. I, I love direct mail so much, but I got to I gotta tell you where you're at in the, with your budget, I would try, I would try cold calling first. All right, man. You're welcome. You said thanks. Miles said thanks. You're welcome, man. I appreciate you being here. All right, guys. We will see you next week. All right. I hope you enjoyed that. Remember, I do these Q&As live on Facebook on Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. I hope you enjoyed this. Tune in next week for another installment of live Q&As answering your questions. Okay. Until next time.